This is an ABC podcast. Imagine this. Imagine spending several hundred million dollars to build a state-of-the-art spacecraft, one that can travel at speeds in excess of 24,000 kilometres an hour, and then programming it so it gets right up close to an asteroid. And then... Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome, as always, to Future Tense. It's called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, DART for short, and it's NASA's first attempt to redirect an Earth-bound chunk of space rock and send it hurtling off into another direction. It's just about to launch, and later in the program we'll get the details from NASA scientist Thomas Statler. But first, to more earthly matters, an economist and historian, Mark Levinson. Globalisation has been much in the spotlight in recent times, particularly with the supply chain problems that have surfaced during the current pandemic. Many are predicting future changes to the way trade flows. But Mark Levinson argues that transformation is already underway. He calls it globalisation's fourth wave. And it's going to make things very complicated. It's important to look at globalization and historical perspective. You know, there are a lot of people who say it's nothing new. We've had globalization since the the days of the ancient Greeks and Assyrians and, and all of that. And that's not really true. There was trade for sure. There's been trade since there have been human beings. But that's not the same thing as globalization. I find it helpful to think of globalization historically in, in three different epochs. The first phase began around 1830 with the beginnings of industrial capitalism. A couple of really important things about that era of globalization, a trade and international investment, international lending became very important, but it was very Eurocentric. About three quarters of the world's trade was to, from, or within Europe. And most of that trade involved commodities, coffee, cocoa, copper, that sort of thing. It didn't really involve manufactured goods at all. That was the first stage of globalization, and it really came crashing to an end at the start of the First World War. And then with depression and the Second World War, globalization took a hiatus for a while. It began again after the Second World War, and now it was a little different. More countries were involved, the United States, Japan, other countries became more prominent in the world economy. Oil trade became significant, whereas during the first globalization, oil trade hadn't mattered. And manufactured goods became a lot more significant. It was around 1960 that manufacturers first began to account for more than half of world trade. So this was very different from the commodity-based trade of the first globalization. Still, the second globalization was really based in the wealthy countries. The poorer countries, we used to call them the South, the emerging countries, the developing countries, the periphery, their job was to supply raw materials to the wealthy countries of the North and then to buy their manufactured goods. And people with long memories will recall that the countries of the South, the developing countries, they tended to think international trade was a really bad thing. It was unfair to them because they were doing the low value stuff, providing the raw materials. 
and they borrowed money from the rich countries and bought their manufactured goods. And that didn't strike them as a, a fair deal. This epoch of globalization really came to an end during the developing country debt crisis of the early 1980s. And then starting around 1987, we began to see a third phase of globalization, which has gone on until quite recently. This form of globalization is focused on manufactured goods, but also on what we've come to call supply chains, long distance supply chains. Previously, trade in manufactured goods tended to mean you make something here and you ship it there. But in this age of long supply chains, what economists call intermediate goods, in other words, components, partially finished products, began to account for most of world trade. And for many products, from autos and, and airplanes to clothes and shoes, it became very common to do part of the production process in one country, send these partially finished goods somewhere else, do more of the production there, and then combine it for final assembly in a different place still. And so this third globalization has really been the age of very, very complex international supply chains. International trade grew very rapidly for much of the period after 1987. International trade grew twice as fast as the world economy. I argue that we're moving into a different age now, but international trade as a share of the world's output peaked back during the financial crisis in 2008. Foreign investment as a share of the world's output peaked around the same time. So we've seen around the world that companies and countries have been retreating a little bit from the third globalization. That doesn't mean that globalization is going away, but it means that international trade and international investment have become a bit less important than they used to be. That's difficult to see at the moment, though, isn't it, during this pandemic, because it does seem as though there's, uh, you know, there's been an increase in global trade because of the pandemic and because people are wanting goods, fixing up the supply problems of the last two years? Well, based on the data that we have for 2020, trade as a share of the world's economy decreased. It didn't increase. So what you see in the papers is only part of the story. I think what we're experiencing, to your question, is that with much of the world locked down because of COVID-19, people's spending patterns have changed. In much of the world, you can't go out to dinner. Schools have been closed in many cases. Restaurants have been closed. Theaters have been closed. People are having a hard time spending on services. And one consequence of that is that people have spent more of their income on goods. But this is a very transitory thing. I think as the pandemic winds down, you'll see a return to people liking to buy services. They buy more and more of them as they grow wealthier and goods will become less important. Now, you say that we've now entered a fourth wave of globalization. What characterizes this particular wave? Yes, I don't think that trade in goods is going away by any stretch. And let me be very clear about that. What I do think is that we're going to see trade in goods become a less important part of the world economy. Goods trade will grow more slowly than global GDP. What we're seeing instead is continued growth in trade and services and ideas. This is a difficult concept to grasp. Yes, some services you can understand. You take an airplane trip on a foreign airline and, and you're importing a service. But a lot of the things that go on in trading services and ideas are digital. They're often uh, within the same company, between different operations of the same firm, or they involve people doing things for which they don't get paid directly. 
and they don't show up in international statistics. So it's really hard to track what's going on in, in services trade. But I think we're seeing the world economy become more and more integrated when you think about services. And that difficulty in measuring that kind of trade, what does that mean for the economies of countries? How do governments, how do they actually measure success in that kind of context? That's a big problem. You know, governments like to focus on something simple like the trade surplus. Do we have a trade surplus or do we have a trade deficit? And a lot of people assert that a trade deficit is a bad thing and a trade surplus is a good thing. I would argue with that, but that's how it's understood by many people in a rather simple way. But when we're talking about trade and services, it's a whole lot tougher. Consider, for example, the situation of an investment bank in Sydney. It has workers there in Australia, and every month they have to file their expense reports. And maybe the investment bank has an operation in India where wages are a lot lower than Australia. So it sends those expense reports to India where workers figure out who should get how much money and they arrange for the payments to be made back in Australia. Well, if those workers work for the same bank as the bank that the investment bankers work for, this is probably going to show up not at all in the international statistics, okay? There's been no transaction. Nothing has changed hands in the sense in which the data keepers gather it. And so, yes, money and digits have moved, but there hasn't been any trade. So from the point of view of a government, it's really hard to figure out what's going on. And that has implications for taxation, doesn't it? It has implications for taxation. It has implications for the answer to the question, how is international trade affecting our country? How is international trade affecting our people? This is relatively easy when you think of a factory. A factory opens or it closes, a whole bunch of people get laid off or they get hired, and you can keep score fairly easily. But when trade is based very much on services that are invisible to the data collectors, it's really hard to know. There are traditional measures that have been used with regard to trade to protect vital industries and, and sectors. But under the, the sort of system that you're talking about, this, this fourth wave of globalisation, I would imagine they're going to be significantly hampered, aren't they, in their effectiveness? Things like punitive duties or tariffs or, or import quotas. It's not clear how you would put duties on digits. Okay, it's, think about it. Conceptually, it's, it's really hard to do. So many of the traditional levers that governments have used to control trade really are not going to make much sense. And it's also hard to think about the measures that governments take to help people or communities who are adversely affected by trade. Again, when you're talking about goods trade, if there's import competition that leads to the closure of a factory, well, often governments have unemployment compensation programs or they provide some assistance to the community until it can find a new employer or that sort of thing. But in the services environment, these sorts of things don't make any sense. You'll see the effects of trade if, for example, wages in certain kind of occupations don't rise very much. That may mean that people who need those tasks done can have them done in other countries where wages are lower. And so people in your country may not be able to charge as much as they would like. You don't necessarily have unemployment in the way that we traditionally think of it. You don't have a factory closure in the way we traditionally think of it. You have some minor change on the edge of the economy. 
And it's going to be very hard to keep track of what is actually affected by international trade in this way. So a lot of the basics around trade, around globalization need to be rethought. Is that actually going on? Are treasuries, are governments starting to look at this issue and and try to find answers to some of the issues that you've raised? Governments just in the last two or three years have started trying to collect a lot more data about trade and services, but it's really a tough challenge, okay? Some of these things are fairly easy to capture. If you have a company in one country and you're purchasing a service at arm's length from a company in another country, in general, the data collectors can get that sort of thing. But if you are, say, employing your own people in a different country and moving digits back and forth as part of your routine business, that's probably never going to show up at all. Or consider what happens, for example, to people who belong to social networks or who use the internet. They are supplying information, perhaps to companies in another country, that is then used to sell advertising. Well, the advertising sales are likely to be counted by the statisticians, but who counts the value of the information that you've provided uh, as a user of the internet? That is really hard to attach a value to and hard to determine which country it comes from. So we're in an area in which many of these things are ill-defined, and in some cases we may never be able to define them very well. Mark Levinson, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And Mark Levinson's new book is called Outside the Box, How Globalisation Changed from Moving Stuff to Spreading Ideas. It's available from Princeton University Press. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. As any parent will tell you, Young children have long been targeted by the advertising industry and the mobile devices they use provide the perfect conduit. But it appears fintech companies and even mainstream financial institutions also see a lucrative future in marketing services to the very young. Nitsan geslevich Packen is an Associate Professor of Law at City University of New York and she's been researching the extent of interest that financial institutions are now showing in our teens and preteens. So you are right that for years now we've been seeing kids being targeted by marketing efforts and sort of being identified as a very good target audience to kind of convince their parents or just want newer, you know, more trendy things. And this has been happening for a while, though obviously with digital engagement, the pursue has taken much more increased front stage focus. But with actual financial services, what's happening now is that it's not just targeting kids for all sorts of purchases. The financial service industry is sort of shifting and changing in terms of really trying to identify the new clientele, the next target audience, which is children, and trying to target them as basically as people who are interested in conducting all sorts of financial transactions, trading and investing included. And so they're reaching out to children. And we see startups that are targeting kids as potential traders, offering them to trade stocks or mutual funds. We see all sorts of traditional financial services asking parents to confirm or allow or, you know, service guarantors for their kids to open accounts and start doing all sorts of financial activity online. 
And it is tempting because these efforts are sort of masked or often portrayed as a way of increasing financial literacy and increasing exposure of children to financial services, which is true. But at the same time, it's not as simple and it's, it's a mixed bag in terms of what the kids are getting out of this. And we're not just talking about teens, are we? You've written about a company called Greenlight that offers digital financial services to children as young as six. So it is very young, but it is actually in line with a lot of other trends that we're seeing. About, I would say, a third of kids in diapers right now are actually already playing with digital devices or smartphones. And so, you know, fintech companies are not mistaken to understand or identify children as potential target audience for these types of services because they're already spending this time online playing with various apps and getting exposed to all sorts of online gaming. And so in that sense, kids are already there. They're already online. They're spending that time online even before the pandemic. The average time that a U.S. 8 to 12-year-old kid spent per day was about four to six hours. And that you know connection is sort of obvious to think the company is saying, they're there, we may as well introduce them to these services. And many of these services, these, these digital platforms, they use game-like features, don't they, to interest the children? So gaming is something that we see everywhere. And I can't say that gaming is a bad thing per se, because there are a lot of advantages to gaming. But we also see it happening with online investing and trading. And there, it's a new type of environment or ecosystem, which we haven't really fully understood the consequences of online gaming and increasing digital engagement. And the SEC, the American um, Securities Exchange Commission, and FINRA, which is the agency in charge of uh, investor protection, have recently in the last few months really started focusing on this issue of gaming as a way of getting more out of people soliciting different types of responses, really trying to understand what this means. Because securities law, you know, did not really have a ready-made theory for trading of these concerns. So is the, the fear here that young children, I mean, again, you know, children as young as six, using these kind of services simply don't realise what they're doing. They don't realise the importance of a financial transaction and what it can mean in the end. Right. And more than that, we know that gaming is something that is getting more engagement out of grown-ups. So certainly children that are less mature and don't understand as much the consequences are really sort of sucked into this type of competitive play-like features not really realizing what this means. So in many ways, what we're doing is we're sort of connecting a few themes that were never really examined together before, which are, you know, gaming and online gaming in particular, which we know is addictive. Kids spend a lot of time on their screens. Screens are addictive. Studies, psychological studies have proven that stock trading is almost like gambling and is addictive. And we take all these things together and sort of combine them into this one new gamification type of a situation in which we're, you know, putting our kids in or exposing children to. And in many ways, it's acting in ways that we haven't really sort of planned for. And also, it really, in many ways, makes investing or or even trading, which is more risky than just investing, right? It makes it less serious. They don't necessarily understand the consequences. They don't necessarily understand that it's real money. They don't necessarily understand the meaning of debt. There was a fintech company called Quedit that offered all sorts of, you know, take the money now and, and buy all these features into your games or whatever you're doing and, and pay later when your parents agree or when you talk to them about that. And these types of things also create a culture of not paying debt, not being responsible, fiscally responsible for your commitments. 
we're really sort of embedding all these not so ideal values into their online gaming culture, which is concerning. There are attempts that were made and there are constantly efforts being made by regulators to try and increase financial literacy among children. So we've seen more focus out of the regulatory agencies. FINRA and the SEC have put up public calls for comment seeking responses about how they should address digital engagement, gamification, what are the concerns, what are the risks. And just in the last couple of months, they've had these open online for people to submit uh, organizations, think tanks, financial players. And now this is really in its infancy because up until now, even though there was a rich literature on regulation of retail investment markets, legal scholars have largely overlooked the regulation of innovative technologies and how they shape traders' decisions, children included. Well, Nitsan Geslovich-Pakin, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. Thank you for having me. In case there was an asteroid coming towards Earth and you're there, you can actually stop it. I mean, that's kind of fantastic. NASA is crashing a spacecraft into an asteroid. What? You think science fiction, but this is real. Never in my life would I have thought... Now to the DART mission, and NASA's plan to deflect a couple of asteroids in deep space. The launch date is scheduled for November 24. And here's NASA scientist Thomas Statler. Well, there are two asteroids, but it's a beautiful binary pair. It's a double asteroid, two asteroids in orbit around each other. And that is a perfect choice for this test for a couple of reasons. What we're doing with DART is we're going to deliberately collide the DART spacecraft with the smaller of the two asteroids. It's called Dimorphos. It's about the size of a football stadium, and it's in orbit around the larger asteroid called Didymos. It's a very, very slow orbit. It's moving at only 17 centimeters per second. You could outwalk this asteroid in space if you were walking around the asteroid. And the reason we're doing this in a binary asteroid, a double asteroid system, is that when we collide the DART spacecraft, with Dimorphos, it will cause a very small change in its velocity. And it's going to change that orbit. And because the orbit is so slow, we'll be able to measure that change very precisely using telescopes on Earth and work out with high accuracy exactly what that impact did. Because that's the real question. I mean, it's one thing to take a few hundred million dollars worth of spacecraft and smash it to bits on an asteroid. But the real question is, did we change the motion of the asteroid and by exactly how much? And that's what the double asteroid system is gonna allow us to do. And most asteroids are not dangerous at all because their orbits never bring them anywhere near the earth. The only asteroids that are dangerous are the ones whose orbits around the sun have an intersection with earth's orbit around the sun. And even then nothing bad happens unless earth and the asteroid try to arrive at that intersection point at the same time, and that's when you can have a collision. So the essence of planetary defense is to identify those potential collisions uh, long, long in advance so that you can take action years before you need to and nudge an asteroid just to avoid that collision, not to destroy the asteroid. That's not something we could realistically do, but just to avoid the collision happening in the first place. So these asteroids are still a long way from Earth, aren't they? I mean, you're launching this rocket 
in a couple of days' time, but it's not expected to make impact with the, the first asteroid until roughly about a year from now, is it? That's exactly right. And, and that's why the DART mission is, is sort of a model for how we might apply a kinetic impact or deflection in the future. When we're launching DART, the asteroid Didymos is actually way out beyond the orbit of Mars. But we know what that asteroid is doing. We know its path around the sun, and we can predict with high precision where it is going to be next September, which is when the DART spacecraft's path meets up with the Didymos asteroid's path, and the two collide with each other. So if all goes to plan, there'll be an impact in around about a year's time. How long will it take before you know whether the test has been successful? So DART is this wonderful double experiment. I mean, we're not only going to a double asteroid, but it's also a double test, the double asteroid redirection test. We're testing our technological ability to actually impact an asteroid, to actually hit it, but we're also testing how the asteroid responds to that impact. And we're doing that using telescopes on Earth. The whole thing works because from Earth, we can see this binary asteroid pair. We can see the objects going front and behind each other by seeing the combined light of the two temporarily dip when one of the objects gets obscured. And so using telescopic observations over the past several years, we've been able to figure out exactly what the period of that binary orbit is. It's 11 hours and 55 minutes. Now, after the kinetic impact of the DART spacecraft on Didymos, we're in effect taking that clock that's been ticking steadily every 11 hours and 55 minutes, and we're damaging the clock, we're changing it. We're gonna change the tick of the clock from 11 hours and 55 minutes to, well, we don't know yet, but something probably like 11 hours and 45 minutes. And so the result of that will be just like you would experience if you found your watch started to run a little bit fast. You wouldn't notice it in the first hour or maybe in the first day, but after a few days, you would notice that it's not keeping proper time anymore. And that's what we're going to see with DART. Those predicted eclipses, the, the moments when one object hides the other, those are going to start to be a little bit off schedule, a little bit at the wrong time. And they will be more and more at the wrong time as we continue observing in the weeks and months after impact. We will probably get an idea that we have made a change within a few days and the exact measurement will come probably a few months later. Now, I'm going to put on my sci-fi hat for a moment. What's the chance of, of this going wrong and the asteroid actually being redirected in a way that is hazardous to Earth? Is there any possibility well, of that? Well, of course, this was studied right at the beginning, and we would never have done this mission. We would never have had this mission plan with this pair of asteroids if that had been a possibility. That would have been irresponsible. So we know that this pair of asteroids is not a danger to Earth, and there's absolutely nothing that we can do to it that would make it a danger to Earth. These are relatively small asteroids. I imagine if, if this is successful, there'd also be a challenge to try and work out how you can do this at scale, how you can do this with perhaps bigger threats to the Earth over time. That's right. And this is a nice little compact asteroid system. Dimorphos, the asteroid we're targeting, is about 160 metres across. I think I said before, it's about a football stadium. But that's a realistic kind of potential threat because there are the, you know, the giant asteroids, there are only a few of those and we know where they are. It's the small asteroids that are more abundant. There are many more of those. And things of about that size are large enough to do a lot of damage. So that kind of size of object is 
representative of the most likely impact threat and also the most likely impact threat where we really need to do something about it because the potential for damage would be quite extreme. Now, that being said, your question is a real good one. What can we do from the result of one test in order to scale up if we do have a larger threat? Well, of course, what we would certainly do first is knowing the outcome from a single kinetic impact, we would then be able to scale up to an approximation of if it's a larger object, do we need multiple spacecraft, or would the right thing be to be simply to, uh, to build a larger spacecraft? These are the sorts of decisions that one would make in a real scenario where the outcome from the buried experiment would be really informative. Thomas Stadler, we'd love to check with you again in around about a year's time to see how it's all going, but thank you very much for being on the program. Well, I'll be happy to do that, and uh, thanks for having me on. And Dr. Statler is a scientist with NASA's Planetary Science Division and the program scientist for the DART mission. That's Future Tense for another week. The producer for this edition was Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.